Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. What a joy to be together today. Amen. Amen. We're continuing our series in Acts. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn over to Acts 24, that's where we're going to be today. Acts 24, starting in the first verse. I love that we just sang that song. It's a familiar song to, to a lot of us, probably. Uh, and if you've been around church, well, you probably sang that song a little bit, right? But not all of us probably immediately the connection to where that song comes from scripturally. This song, Blessed Be the Name, is actually connected directly to the story of Job. So in the story of Job, you know that book. It's about a guy who has a really, 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 really no good, awful, terrible, bad day. Uh, yeah. That's pretty little yeah. uh, The story of Job is the story of a guy who loses everything. When one horrific day experiences some of the worst suffering we can imagine, his, his whole, all of his children die, and he loses all of his possessions, and he loses his health, and he's literally sitting in the ashes of his life, of his legacy, and his wife is telling him, you should just curse God and die because your life's not worth living. It's a really heavy way to start, right? But that's, that's where Job is. And in that context, Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow. That's where we actually get that song. I'm like, dang, I sing that song pretty happy. <laughs> but that really is like... Like, the message behind that song, it's really on the nose where we're going today. This idea that, that because of the gospel, hear this, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for you and for me, we are people in the Lord, in Christ, who do not have to be conquered or owned by our circumstances. Amen. Because of the reality of the gospel, even when our plans are just destroyed in front of us, when things are not going the way we wish or desire, we do not have to be crushed by those things, controlled by those things. The gospel of Jesus means that followers of Christ can still walk in joy, freedom, faithfulness, even when their plans fall apart. It's pretty intense. I, I, I know a little bit of that in my own life. It's really kind of dumb to put my story next to Job's because of the immense suffering and loss that guy experienced. But, but I do know a little bit of this, and, and I'll give you just a little piece of this. You know, when I was engaged to be married, like coming up to my wedding, so like early 20s, I was a youth pastor at the church I grew up at. And at that point in life, my plan was to just do that for like the next 20 years, right? Like that was the extent of my plans. And about five months before my wedding, the economy fell apart, it was a huge mess, and that all went down the drain. And I got laid off right before my wedding and was no longer working at the church I grew up at. And it was just it was just a really messy, painful time in my life when the stuff I had set up for myself just just didn't work. Just didn't work. But the reality is, as I've said, as we're going to say several times this morning, is the reality of the gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel, just supersedes our circumstances. It's just more powerful than our failed or broken or even successful plans. Amen? Amen. So, Acts 24, we're looking at the story of Paul, and to put you guys, to catch us up, especially for those of you guys who are visiting with us today. So essentially the story is this. In the last chunk of Acts, Acts for the most part has been following kind of 
the growth of the church, these missionary journeys, and this guy named Paul. But this last chunk of Acts tells the story of Paul making his way to Jerusalem uh, and then getting arrested and making his way to Rome. And we're smack in the middle of that story. We're actually on kind of the last few chapters. We're coming up on the end of Acts. We'll be finishing it out over the course of the next month, which is kind of fun. But what happened at this point is Paul made his way to Jerusalem. He, he was there worshiping in the temple. And uh, the Jews in Jerusalem were so angry that Paul was there that they rose up a riot, drug him outside the temple, and began to beat him to death in the streets outside the temple. The Roman officials, kind of the police of Jerusalem, found this in progress, stopped the murder, and arrested Paul so they could figure out what was going on. When they had kind of some initial discussions, like the, the Roman military leader met with Paul and kind of interviewed him, they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the religious high court of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem, and, and stuff just didn't, it wasn't getting clear, it wasn't getting resolved, and it escalated to the point that the Jewish people in Jerusalem developed a plot to murder Paul while he was in Roman custody. When this came to light, because Paul's a Roman citizen and had the right to a trial, they transferred him to Caesarea, to the governor's palace, so that he could have a proper Roman trial. And that's where our text today picks up. So, Acts chapter 24 Starting in the first verse, we read this. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman named Tertullius. And they laid before the governor the case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, and everywhere and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now, what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is called the sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves see what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having rather acute knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So after some days, Felix came with his wife, Jesula, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. 
And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of fellowship, the gift of worship, of song, of prayer, all these things, Lord. You are so good. Your presence is so known this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue that work, continue that ministry in our hearts through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, give us open ears and open eyes and tender hearts to hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would teach us, and that each one of us will leave this space today having heard from you what our heart actually needs. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so here's what I'd like to do today. I want to I put this story, this kind of courtroom drama, into a little bit of context within Acts as a whole and kind of point out a couple of the historical pieces that I think will just help us make sense of this. But, but ultimately, I think what this story shows us is just going to become really plain when we look at the faithfulness of Paul to the work of the kingdom in the face of his absolutely broken plans and bad circumstances, right? That's going to lead us to, to look at a pretty, pretty well-known proverb, and then we'll end our time reflecting on that truth that because of the gospel, we can walk in peace, obedience, and joy in the midst of whatever circumstances come to us, in the midst of whatever plans fall apart around us. Well, we'll think about that from the perspective of Peter. Uh, we'll end with a text from Peter's first letter to the church, and then we'll spend some time in prayer reflection if you need. Sound good? Awesome. Okay, so, courtroom drama. We're, Paul's been arrested. He's been brought from Jerusalem to Caesarea. I think we have a map to put up. So, so you see here, right, the very bottom, Jerusalem, that's where he ended his missionary journey. And now he's made his way back to Caesarea. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, when Paul was making his journey to Jerusalem, his last major stop was in Caesarea, right? Like, he, he stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, which if you can stretch your, your brain way back, like Acts chapter 6, Philip was one of the original seven deacons appointed to the church, gifted in evangelism, traveled around preaching the gospel, and eventually settled in the city of Caesarea. When Paul comes on his way back to Jerusalem and stops there, that's where he hangs out, at the house of Philip the Evangelist. This is where the prophet Agabus comes to Paul and warns him, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested. And Paul's like, I know, but I have to do obedience to Christ. And now, a month later, Paul is back in Caesarea, but now he's in prison. Right? And, and a couple things we need to know before we jump into this text. The first one is this city, Caesarea. See, for us, as church folk, you know, we don't probably think a huge amount about first century history unless we're thinking about it in the context of the Bible, right? So when we think about ancient Palestine, most of us are thinking about Jerusalem, right? Like that's the city we think of when we think of this region. That's where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry. It's the religious center point of a lot of the history of that region. But for the Roman world, Jerusalem wasn't really a big deal. For the Roman world, Caesarea Maritima was a big deal. This was the main Roman city for the province 
of Judea. This port city is an ancient city, but it was built to kind of its maximum prominence under the rule of Herod the Great. This was the Roman governor over this region at the time of Jesus' birth. So right around the time Jesus was born, this city, Caesarea, was built into a major port that became an actually pretty important part of the Roman economy and the Roman military structure. It was the main way to import and export out of Judea. Judea didn't make much besides wheat and barley, but they did help feed the Roman Empire and all that came out of Caesarea. This became a really Romanized city. The governor's palace was there. They had a Roman-style stadium where they would do the ancient games and Roman plays and things like that. A big piece that is is remembered historically about this city is that a part of the only real real contribution Judea made to the Roman military-industrial complex was a big old fleet of naval ships that were housed here in Caesarea and helped out in military strategy for the whole empire. So for the average Roman, if they thought about Judea, they were thinking about Caesarea. This is the Greek or Roman capital, basically, of this region. And this is where Paul's at. He's hanging out in the prison beneath the governor's palace. He's right on the coast. The ruins of this building are still there. You can go hang out and look at them. And his accusers make their way up from Jerusalem, and he has this initial courtroom scene. And we really do get this kind of like Matlock-style scene, right, where, where the accusers, the Jewish Sanhedrin, like they make their argument against Paul. Paul gives his defense, and Felix, the Roman governor, standing in the seat of the judge, kind of gives his initial thoughts, right? So, so let me kind of sum this piece up for us. Tertullius, who's the, the, the lawyer on behalf of the Jewish Sanhedrin, his argument about Paul can basically be summed up as, this guy is a dangerous pest, right? And, it, and I won't dig too much into this, but the way he structures his argument, the wording he uses, he's basically telling Festus, look, or Felix, I don't have much in the way of hard evidence here, but you should still do something about this guy because he's dangerous. Is what he basically says is this guy is just generally known as an agitator. He's a leader of this religious sect, and it's bad news. You should kill him. And and by the way, even though there's no real evidence here other than just these guys saying this guy's bad news, this is a really serious charge. And the reason is because Judea was a notoriously difficult area to keep conquered by the Romans. They continually had violent uprisings and fought against their Roman rulers. In particular, in the century leading up to the birth of Christianity, the Jewish religion became increasingly politicized. You had sects of Judaism like the Zealots, who would carry out violent insurrections and violent guerrilla warfare to try and push off their Roman oppressors. So when these guys come along, the religious leaders, and say, this guy is the leader of a fringe religious sect, and he gets riots going everywhere he goes, it's a pretty serious charge. This is the kind of thing that could really easily get Paul killed. So Paul gives his defense back to Felix. And I love Paul's defense because it's basically just kind of, uh, uh, a little more involved than that. But what he basically says is, I didn't do any of those things, and they can't prove I did. I don't do any of that stuff. Don't worry about it. And, and, he's, and the real push he's getting to this Roman governor is essentially just saying, yeah, look, I am a leader in a religious sect within Judaism, but it's pretty orthodox. Like, we believe the same scriptures they do. We proclaim a lot of the same things they do. There's no reason to think of me like a zealot or a terrorist leader. Like, I'm just the dude 
who's worshiping God and doing my, I, I was in Jerusalem to give a benevolence offering. Like, I don't really know how any of this happened. That's his basic argument was going, this, this case is not worthy of your time, Roman governor. Right? This is an internal religious matter, and we aren't different enough for you to be worried about what I'm doing. Now, we get a really interesting peek into Felix here. Because the text tells us that Felix actually knows a lot about the way. The way is uh, the term that was used within Jewish circles to describe Christianity before it was called Christianity. It says that, that Felix has an acute knowledge of the way, which means something really specific, guys. It means that he knows Paul is no actual danger. And there's a good reason for this. Caesarea had become a pretty strong church early on, right? Peter spent time here. Philip the Evangelist spent time here, or has his home base here, right? The, the church in Caesarea is strong and healthy and probably known enough that government officials are aware of it, right? And so he knows perfectly well a Christian leader is not going to do anything. They basically just hang out with poor people and take care of each other and pray. Like, they're just kind of doing their thing. They don't really, they don't disturb the peace much. But he also knows that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem can make his life hell, right? He knows that this is a hard region to reign over, and because these guys are this worked up, he's got he's to walk this situation delicately. Because Paul's a Roman citizen, so he can't just kill him. If he, Paul wasn't a Roman citizen, this never would have happened. They the Romans would have found out there was a plot to kill the guy, and they would have been like, hey, go for it. They, they wouldn't have dealt with all this mess. And they couldn't have on his record that some poor Roman citizen got killed for no particularly good reason. So he really is at this point where he goes, I've got to figure out what to do with this thing. So he punts. He looks at them and says, good arguments. I've got to think about it. I want to talk to my boss about it. You guys go home. I'll let you know when I make a decision. He sends the accusers home. He leaves Paul in custody, but gives him a ton of freedom, allows the church in Caesarea to care for his needs, make sure he's fed and clothed and those things. And then we get, I think, just the absolute like banger piece of this text. Felix and his wife start asking Paul to come hang out with them and teach them about the way. Did you catch this? They, Felix and his, and his Jewish wife ask Paul to come teach them about the way. And, and I think there's a, probably a couple of reasons for this. The text is really blunt in telling us that on one level, Felix is super corrupt, and he's like, this guy has access to church benevolence funds. Maybe he'll just bribe me. <laughs> we can like, get this thing going, right? But also, there's very good reason to think that he probably genuinely is curious about the theology of the way. His wife is Jewish, and also, like, it was considered standard practice in Roman government for governors to be involved in the philosophy and religious practice of the region they were governing. So if, if the way is becoming a more prominent sect in Judaism and he has a leader of the way, like, yeah, he probably wants to hear a little bit about that and wrestle with that. And so he continually brings Paul into his presence, kind of hoping for a bride, but getting to hear what Paul has to say. And the text tells us really interestingly, basically saying that Paul takes the opportunity to talk to him about Jesus but look what, it, look what it specifically says that he teaches him in talking about Jesus. And he talked to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. It's a pretty, pretty uh, interesting and unique way to share the gospel. But the reason for this is actually really obvious to any first century reader looking at this text. See, Felix 
was pretty notorious as just a terrible and corrupt leader, both inept governmentally, but also just pretty bad ethically. So when he was given this posting to be the governor over Judea, he left his wife and kids, abandoned them, and moved there. And when he got there, he found a wealthy Jewish woman married to another political leader and convinced her to leave her husband and kids and come marry him and live in the palace. So that's like how this marriage came about, was two people abandoning their families and coming together to revel in power and political corruption, right? So when Paul comes to preach to him, who, who understands about the way, who understands Jewish theology, he goes, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about this. So here's the deal. Christ demands that you be righteous and live with self-control and not give in to your baser desires and temptations. And you should pay attention to that because there is a coming judgment where he will return and make an account for every single careless sin. And Felix was alarmed, which is kind of like, yeah, right? Like, that's pretty, pretty pointed. Felix does not like this, but he does like money, so he keeps asking Paul to come back. And, and the way this is written basically tells us that as Paul is called back to Felix and his wife continually, he just preaches this same message to him. Which really, when you get down to it, for, for a guy who already has some context around the teaching of who Yahweh is and some of the base theology of the Bible, like, he's really just giving him a call to repentance, right? Felix, you need to deal with your sin. Felix, you need to deal with your sin. The judgment is coming. This stuff is serious. Felix, you need to deal with your sin. And the text tells us that that goes on for two years. Two years. Two years of Paul being stuck in prison, coming and hanging out with this guy and his wife, who are very closed off to the gospel, and just preaching the same message of repentance over and over and over. And at the end of the two years, when Felix finally gets fired for his ineptitude, and his successor comes in, he leaves Paul in prison as a favor to the Jewish leaders and moves on. And that's how our text ends. Now, now it's going to go into next week, and we're going to see some really cool ways the way God works through this and is accomplishing his plan. But can, can we just be honest for a minute? Like, that's like a real bummer of a way for this text to land out, right? And then if you think about it, in the larger message of what's going on in Paul's life, going back to Acts 19, Paul had a clear vision and direction from God for what was next for him. Remember, he was sitting in Ephesus in the middle of his third missionary journey, and the Holy Spirit clearly led him and said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and offer this, give this benevolence offering that you've been building up in the last several years, and then I want you to go to Italy and preach the gospel in Rome. And so Paul spends literal months making preparations for this massive missionary endeavor to go into Italy and preach the gospel. He writes and sends letters. He puts the affairs in order in the churches he's been leading. He takes his financial gift he's been collecting for Jerusalem and hand-delivers it because he feels a clear calling from God to go to Italy and preach the gospel in Rome. But now he's stuck in a prison in Caesarea. And he's stuck in a prison in Caesarea for something he didn't do with no real ability to defend himself, with no real legal recourse, just hanging out for two years. There's nothing to do besides preach the gospel to a guy that doesn't really want to hear it. That's intense. It's intense. And I, I, I don't know like, if you're like me, but maybe, maybe that like, strikes some of you guys immediately as we're talking about this story of just... These elaborate plans Paul has made, really intense and specific plans Paul has made, that he's made believing in faith that this is God's will for him in his life, 
and then his circumstances just come crashing down and destroy his plans, and he's stuck in something he didn't plan for that just seems really unfruitful. I mean, we're talking about a guy who at this point has spent the last 20 years traveling around the Roman Empire, planting churches, preaching the gospel, discipling people, leading people, leading the church, doing really effective and intense ministry, and now he's stuck in a prison cell, dependent on the benevolence ministry of a local church, and preaching the gospel to one guy who's really looking for a bride for two years. Two years. Just spinning his wheel. I don't know if you guys, like, maybe some of us, like, resonate with that. Of feeling stuck in your circumstances, right? Like, there's this piece of, man, I thought God was doing this, or I really thought this piece was coming together, or I really thought my life was heading this direction, but now I'm just stuck. It's not moving. Nothing's happening. I don't feel like I can do anything to change this. I'm just stuck here. And if you're anything like me, I look at this story and I see Paul in this and I'm like, how are you not just angry right now? How are you not? Like, the response we see from Paul is so different from the way I respond when my plans like don't go into fruition when things like, when circumstances seem like they're keeping in. Like, my God, my immediate reaction most of the time in that kind of context is to come to God in frustration. God, I thought you were calling me to this. Like, I thought we were in this thing together. I thought this is what we were doing. Why is it not working? Why is it more difficult than I thought it would be? Why is it more painful? Why is it taking so long? Why am I stuck in this? Why is this happening this way? What we see in Paul, we see in Paul is just this peaceful, faithful ministry. We don't see him like wallowing in depression and hiding. We don't see him writing angry letters about how terrible everything is. We see him getting up every day, preaching the gospel to a guy and his wife who don't want to hear it. And just sitting in that. Sitting in that faithfully. Two years. It's a long, stinking time. How the heck does Paul remain faithful and joyful in that season? I think on some level, right, we're all aware that this is how life works. That we, we make our plans and, and we just literally have zero control of whether or not they'll come to fruition, right? The Psalms, 60, or Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps, right? We all know that truth, that at the end of the day, no matter what we may tell ourselves and what we may pretend, we actually have very little control over our circumstances. And so we make our plans. And by the way, you should make plans. That's good and that's why, that's good stewardship to make the best out of the resources and time you have to seek to glorify God and be obedient to him and all those things. But at the same breath, we all know deep in us that when we make those plans, we can't really bring them to fruition. That we're not actually in control of our environment and all sorts of things can happen in any given moment that just bring it all crashing down. That just break it all. So what do we do? How do we, how, how do we actually engage this world with any kind of peace, any kind of stability? I look at a text like this, and I look at Paul, and I look at his reaction, and I'm like, man, that's amazing. I mean, this guy, like, 
plans get crushed, he's stuck, he has no control over it, and yet here he is walking in faithfulness, walking in joy, doing ministry. But in my, if I'm being honest with you guys, something in my brain is just like, yeah, Paul's like a super Christian. He's just like better at Jesusing than I am. So of course he responds that way. But the reality truth is we know that's not true. We know that Paul is, is, is a human like anyone else. He's not Jesus. He's just a guy who loves Jesus and is given his life to following him. He has the same temptations we have, the same sinful heart we have, the same selfish desires we have, the same frustrations we have. And yet, in this text, in this instance, we see him responding with just this joyful, peaceful, open-handedness that, if we're honest, doesn't seem to be the norm when we, as believers today, run headlong into broken and destroyed plans and painful and difficult circumstances. Amen? Amen. It just seems like that's not how we tend to do it. We tend to respond to those things by giving, like, if we're honest, cliches. Well, that's really difficult, man. I'm really sorry. But, you know, God is good. Like, God's in control. And here's the thing about that cliche. It's true. (laughs) Praise be to God. That we worship Yahweh, the creator and owner and sustainer of reality. Right? Like when you read Colossians 1, like he is the one who's actually in complete and total control of all things. But when we say in those moments, right, like, yeah, it's good, you know, like God's in control, he's good, he's gonna be working through this. Something in that for most of us oftentimes is kind of like, yeah, sure. But this still really stinks, and why isn't he fixing it? If that's if that's the deal. If he's in control, then why is this so lame, right? I I think here's the thing, guys. There's truth in that statement. The Bible teaches that. Our God is sovereign. He is the the ruler of reality. But I think in the moment when we're the ones whose plans have fallen apart, when we're the ones whose circumstances are painful, who are experiencing suffering, I think we need to take that a layer deeper and bring it back to the gospel. Because here's the thing. When we say... Hey man, God's good, God's in control. What we're actually saying is, God is sovereign. Colossians 1, he's the ruler of creation. He's the ruler of reality, which means, unlike us, God is in control of his circumstances. God is in control of his environment. Unlike us, the plans of God do come to fruition every time. Which begs the question, so then what is the plan of God? What is the thing he's doing that is coming to fruition, that is, he is in complete control? Well, the answer to that is the gospel. It's the gospel story. It's the truth that our creator God was not satisfied to let sin and suffering and death and the curse and evil have the final say on his good creation. Amen. So he sent his son into this world, into this broken and sinful world, to live a perfect life and earn a just, perfect eternity. But even though Christ earned that, he died an unjust sinner's death. And somehow in that, in that transaction, Christ made a way where, where he can pay the penalty of our sin and he can give us the reward of his righteousness so that us in Christ to receive that gift, to submit to him as Lord, can actually live secure eternally. 
That when Christ returns and judges all things and gets rid of everything bad, right? Like in the return of Christ, when all things evil are destroyed and gone, and all that remains is what is good and righteous, in Christ, you will be counted righteous, and you'll get to experience that eternity with him, apart from any evil, suffering, pain, or bad circumstances. Woo! That's the plan of God. Praise God. Amen. And it's amazing. And it's true. And here's the thing, guys. It's rooting. It's something that roots you. Like, the gospel of Jesus saying, God is good, he's in control. And meaning that is a shorthand for the gospel story. Guys, that roots you. That gives you context in the midst of your circumstances. See, when your life is falling apart and your plans are going terribly in such a way that it ruins years of your life, that can be really heavy and that can be crushing. But when you say, God's good and he's in control, and what you mean by that is the deeper truth of the gospel story, it roots you in the reality that your plans falling apart right now may ruin years of your life. But 77 trillion years from now, when you've been walking in perfect eternal communion with Christ for longer than anything has existed, that won't matter that much to you. <laughs> so the gospel story roots us in reality. The reality that in Christ, you have eternal security. That in Christ, your circumstances forever are so secure. Nothing can shake Christ's work is accomplished. It's done. He's already paid the penalty for sin. He's already conquered death. He already rose from the dead. And the Spirit is promised. And He is returning to make all things new, to destroy everything wrong and leave behind everything good and righteous and holy and perfect. And in Him, you have a part in that. Nothing can take that away. Nothing can shake that. Nothing can break that. And that, beloved, is so rooting. It's so grounding. It's the kind of thing that allows a guy like Job to look at the loss of literally everything in his life. No children, no property, no home, no joy or safety in his marriage, no health, his body rotting away. And he looks up and says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's the kind of truth that roots Paul in such a way that when his plans, months of plans, plans that he feels very called by God to work through, fall flat on their face and break apart, he goes, okay. Okay, yes, Lord. What, do you, what will you have me do here? Who's the guy in front of me? Felix, okay, I'll preach to this cat. I'll keep doing this over and over and over and over and over, even though he really doesn't want to hear it. Does that for two years? Come on, church. The gospel so roots us in the security of Christ's accomplished work on our behalf that we are able not just to not be conquered by our circumstances, not just to not be crushed by our broken and failing plans, but to actually push us into joyful, like joyful, peaceful, effective seeking after the kingdom. Amen. Pushes us to actual participation with Christ and what he's doing in this world. See, Paul, because of the security of the gospel, was able to let his plans crumble around him and then look at the circumstances presented to him, look at the world as it was in front of him, look at his today and just say, okay, Jesus, you have my yes today, so whatever that looks like, let's do this. 
That looks like talking to Felix again. Yeah, I can do that. He still wanted to go to Rome. And by the way, God's still going to send him to Rome. As we'll see in the next text, God was working in the background to set things up for him in ways he couldn't possibly imagine. He thought he was fundraising and putting things in order for a massive missionary endeavor to head to Rome. But in reality, God was going to send him to Rome on Rome's dime on a Roman centurion prison ship. He had no way of knowing that at that point. And I said he woke up, looked at the today he was given. Not the today he planned for, not the today he hoped for, the today he was given. And he said yes to Jesus. He said yes to what was in front of him. He sought the kingdom right in front of him. And beloved, that is, that is just never wasted. That's always worth it. My goodness. Peter, the apostle Peter, wrote to the church in, in, in the midst of one of the first really brutal persecutions of the church. When there's a lot of government-sanctioned suffering going on for Christians. And he was writing to them about the suffering they would very likely face. And in the third chapter of 1 Peter, he says this. Now who is there to harm me if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, your persecutors, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with, with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be the Lord's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for our sins the righteous and the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You should catch that familiar verse right in the middle of that section. Always be prepared to give a defense. That's one of those ones they teach you in youth group, right? Always be prepared to give a defense. But he shares that in the midst of talking to this church about their terrible circumstances. Yeah, church, I know it's going to be rough. I know many of you will very likely suffer. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Just look for the opportunities to say yes to the kingdom. Don't worry about that peace. Just look for the opportunities to say yes to Jesus, to give a defense, to share the hope that is in you. And beloved, you go back and look at church history. The church took that to heart. In the first 200 years of Christian history are very bloody. A lot of suffering, a lot of loss, a lot of sacrifice. And yet what you see, if you read the accounts the testimonies of those brothers and sisters who went before us is that they joyfully preach the gospel to their persecutors and their murderers and their torturers. Singing the Psalms and praying, like, praying prayers over those who are harming them. That's intense. That's heavy. But I share that to say this. The gospel is so rooting. The gospel is so rooting. It's such a firm foundation. You know, Christ said this at the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that, that those who hear my words and put them into practice are like those who build their house on a firm foundation. When the storm and the winds and the water and the floodwaters come, the house will not fall. The gospel is a strong foundation. It roots you in this life in such a way that your circumstances don't have to crush you. Your failed plans don't have to crush you. Not only do they not have to crush you, you actually can walk in joy and obedience and peace and security in the midst of an uncertain and painful and hard and difficult world. 
You can say yes to what God has for you today. Whether it was what you planned for or hoped for or not. You can say yes every morning. You know, I shared at the beginning that my plan was never to put my roots down in West Point. I thought I was going to do this youth pastor gig at this church I grew up at forever. And I got laid off right from my wedding. And by just kind of desperation <laughs> and saying yes to whatever God put in front of us, I ended up as a youth pastor at a church here in West County. And over a course of a series of multiple years and multiple other weird, not real plans and saying yes to God, I ended up taking a church planning residency at another church here in West County. Over the course of multiple years and more yeses and more whatever, I ended up taking the lead pastor of that church and the pastor of the mission field. And over the course of a couple of years and multiple yeses and not really making good plans, but just trusting God, we ended up meeting this little church called West Kind of Bible Church and doing something together in October, planting an annual fellowship right here in the space. Now I don't say that to Sam Lawson, as I told you at the beginning, I'm pretty much the quickest one to just complain to God about things not going in my life. But I say that to say, our plans, let's be honest, they're probably not that great anyway. <laughs> let's be honest. God knows what he's doing. And when we say yes to what God hands us daily, walking in faith and obedience day by day, God will write a story for you that you could have never planned for yourself. So, Chris is going to come up. We're going to sing a song. We're going to be done. I want to ask you guys, Take a few minutes to pray while this song is singing. I would encourage you to find some space to, to be with Christ for a couple minutes. If you can do that in your chance, um, you know, get on your knees to have some space with Jesus. If you want to find a little pastor, you can do that. But I would encourage you to take these few minutes as Chris sings. And I want you to just, just talk to God about this idea. What it means to faithfully say yes to Him day by day by day. And I want to give you kind of three considerations. The first one is this, you know. I'm saying the security of Christ, what his accomplished work in your behalf, that's what roots you in such a way that the circumstances of this world are crushing you. So I would encourage you to ask first and foremost, are you secure in Christ? Have you actually said yes to him to receive salvation and forgiveness of your sin? If you have, I would encourage you consider the invitation of Jesus for you. You know, one of our pastors would love to talk to you about that. If you, if you know that you're in Christ, if you know the security you have in him and the work he's done in your behalf, I would encourage you to consider two questions. The first one is just this. Are you actually open to saying yes to Jesus today? Right? Like, are you are you open-handed enough with your circumstances, with your plans, with what's around you, that you're even willing to ask Jesus what it is he has for you day by day? Is your heart open enough? Ask him. Think through that. Think through how tightly you try and hold the reins on your life day to day. See if the Spirit's going to be calling you back. Loosen that grip a little bit. And lastly, and I would ask you to just genuinely just ask the Lord, what is your yes for me today, right now? What is the thing in front of me? What is the thing for the kingdom right now that I can do? Plans are great. Future is great. Think about those things. But what, what is right in front of you? You can just say yes to Jesus. You can be a part of his work here regardless of your present circumstances. Work through those questions, sit with Jesus, pray with him as the song is sung. Then I'm going to come back up and do this to you. Sound good? I do the work